0: sure is good to be with you all. BJ made a a good thing, or said a good thing that I forgot to tell you guys about. So back there, there'll be these prayer cards, tell you how you can be praying for us, and these are really cool, they're booklets that kind of just tell you what we're doing, and give you some more information, and then there's an e-newsletter you can sign up for as well. Have you ever been in a situation where you knew what to do but you either didn't know how to carry it out or you didn't have the tools to do it? This past Tuesday, my family and I were traveling back from Vermont and we got a flat tire just outside of Indiana as we were going into Ohio and we broke down on the interstate. Now, normally, I would just go grab my tools or use a buddy's shop because I know what to do with a tire that goes flat. But in this case, our van was crammed packed full of suitcases and snacks, and all I had was the dinky little jack and the little tire iron. So I get out, I'm looking at the van, and I'm trying to unloosen the lug nuts, They're tight. I'm starting to strip the nut. I try to get the donut out, but because the van has a flat tire, it's too low to the ground. They put the donuts underneath. Now it's wedged under there. I can't get the donut out. And I can't get the jack underneath to get the donut out because it's sand, and the jack doesn't work well on sand. So as you can tell, this was not like the Oklahoma musical. I did not have a beautiful feeling that everything was going my way. It was miserable. It was hot. I have four daughters. You can imagine the scene. Miserable. I am not equipped to handle this right now. So I had to do what no man likes to do. I called for help. 30 minutes later, we have a tow truck on site. He takes me to the tire shop. 45 seconds to get the tire, or to get the van jacked up. 30 seconds with a pneumatic drill. Gets the lug nuts off. It took longer for me to talk to the front desk person than for the tech. To change my tire out. He had everything he needed. He was equipped for the task. You guys know what I'm talking about. These kinds of scenarios where you know what to do, don't have the tools, or you don't know how to carry it out with what you have. That can be uh, school. We go to med school. We go to tech school. We go to school for all kinds of things. We know the what. We need help with the how. Well, something similar can be said about the Great Commission. As good Baptists, we know the Great Commission. I think we have to recite it before we can even be baptized. We know that we are to go and make disciples of all nations. That's the what. But knowing the what isn't always enough. Being equipped is essential. We need to know the how as well. So how does Christ equip and empower his disciples for the Great Commission? How did he do that with the apostles? What did he do with them? What did he teach them? Closer to home for us. What is it going to take for you and me to live on mission and faithfully carry out the task given to us by our Lord and Savior? I believe Luke 24, starting in verse 36, is where we get to see Christ equipping and empowering the first disciples to make them ready for the mission. So, if you would turn to Luke 24, starting in verse 36. I'm going to read verses 36 through 43. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and he said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Now, it's helpful to know where we are in the flow of Luke's gospel as we jump into verse 36. Chapter 23 contains the crucifixion of Christ, the burial of Christ, and the women who had followed Christ resting on the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week. But with a new beginning, a new week beginning, as is noted in chapter 24, verse 1, we have a new creation beginning. On the first day of the week, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, and he rises from the dead early in the morning. And in chapter 24, Luke records for us three interactions on that first Easter Sunday. All three of these interactions include similar ideas. First, there are followers of Christ who are learning about Jesus' resurrection in one way or another. Second, in each of these interactions, the response of the disciples is perplexing disbelief. And third, that disbelief is addressed, whether that's by angels or by Jesus himself. In verses 1 through 12, the women find the tomb empty. The text says the women are perplexed to find Jesus' body gone. And then two angels address their disbelief, and they say this, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. In verses 13 through 35, we have two disciples encountering Christ on the road to Emmaus. These disciples can see Christ, but they can't recognize him. The two men are referred to as being sad because they had hoped Jesus would be the Savior of Israel. But now he's dead by crucifixion. They've also heard the testimony of the women, that he's alive again, but they aren't believing it. Jesus addresses their disbelief, and he says... Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then Luke writes for us, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now we come to our passage, the third interaction on this Easter Sunday. It's happening late in the evening. And it has the same three ideas occurring in verses 36 through 43. Resurrection encountered, followed by perplexing disbelief. And that disbelief is addressed. The interaction begins in verse 36 with Jesus appearing in the midst of the disciples. They're talking to the two who've just ran back from Emmaus. They've seen Jesus and they want to tell the disciples about him. And as this is all going on, this commotion is taking place Jesus appears in the midst of them and he says, peace to you. Though that was a common greeting in their day, it has taken on a whole new meaning now that Christ has raised from the dead. Before the crucifixion, Jesus had told his disciples in John 14 that he would give them peace when he said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And after conquering sin and death for his people, Christ is now able to give that peace to his people. But because the disciples aren't comprehending what's going on, they're doing the opposite of what he said. They are troubled. They are afraid, as if it couldn't possibly be Jesus back from the dead. They think it's some sort of spirit. And in verse 38, Jesus responds to them asking, why are you guys troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? This question communicates that Jesus' disciples aren't responding the way they ought. They are just like the women early that morning, the disciples that afternoon. What should be obvious is not obvious, though Jesus had said it would happen on numerous occasions. Rather, the disciples have trouble doubting hearts. Then Jesus commands them in verse 39, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. Jesus is saying that there is no need to wonder or to doubt if he is some ghost. Because spirits don't have flesh and bone bodies. He's saying, I'm right here, guys. Look at me. Touch me if you have to. See my hands. See my side pierced for your transgressions. It's really me verse 41, tells us that the disciples are still concerned. They have a stiff arm out. The verse reads, they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. I think based on the context that this disbelief isn't unbelief, because their disbelief is in the midst of joy and marveling. This isn't an unbelief that says, you're not Jesus back from the dead. This is a I don't understand what I'm seeing with my eyes. Can this really be Jesus back from the dead? It's hesitation. It's wonderment. It's a disbelief because they aren't getting it yet. And Jesus recognized they are disbelieving for joy, and he asks for something to eat as another proof that it's really him and not a ghost. So Jesus takes a piece of fish from the disciples. He begins to eat it, chewing and swallowing. Table manners are out the window. Everyone is watching as he swallows each bite of fish. All to prove that he really is back from the dead. Those verses contain three proofs that Christ has truly resurrected and is fully human. He is seen He is touched, and he eats. Now, it's helpful to see why the disciples would find all of this perplexing, despite being able to clearly see him and having been taught by him throughout his ministry. In their day, the Jews were teaching, and they get a reigning Messiah. That makes sense to them, a reigning Messiah, one who comes to save God's people from God's enemy and to establish God's kingdom on earth. That is clear to them. But what they don't get is a suffering Savior. And the reason they don't get it is because that's not what was being taught in mainstream Jewishness teaching. They were teaching and looking for a Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed and king who would end suffering, not a king who would endure suffering and receive the curse of death. They weren't looking for that. In their minds, they're thinking, how can a king who suffers and dies end the suffering of his people? It's counterintuitive to them. So it's this whole picture of the Messiah dying and raising from the dead that has the disciples cautious, confused, and slow of heart to believe. That helps us to see why Jesus is so patient with them and giving them all these proofs. They've been... Uh, entrenched in a teaching that is not helpful. Within the four Gospels, Luke shares the most about the disciples' disbelief and slowness of heart to believe in his resurrection. He's giving them these proofs so that they would be sure of the resurrection, that they would be confident that Christ really has raised from the dead. He wants them to have a sure faith. And it's helpful to know that being sure or certain of Christ is what is the purpose of Luke's gospel. In the first chapter of Luke, it starts off by saying that he has written this orderly account of what Jesus has accomplished among us. Why? That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This whole book of the Bible has been written so that believers can be sure of the things they've been taught about Christ and Christ himself. Is doing no less on the evening with the disciples. He's saying to them, See my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see if you have to, that you may have certainty concerning my resurrection. So we can see that Jesus is calling the disciples to a sure faith based on seeing him back from the dead with their own eyes. If Christ's disciples are going to go and make disciples, they're going to need a sure faith to carry out the mission. They won't be able to do this if they are doubting, if they're wondering. They're not going to be confident, boldly proclaiming Christ to the lost. Now in the last half of our passage... Jesus continues to equip and empower the disciples by showing them that the gospel message really is Scripture's message, that his death, his resurrection, his salvation of sinners from all nations is what the Bible has been saying this whole time. And he's going to empower them by sending the Holy Spirit to ensure his disciples can carry out that task of proclaiming him to the ends of the earth. Would you look with me at verses 44 through 49? Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now it's, Helpful to notice here that there are no imperatives or commands when Jesus discusses the Great Commission. He's not trying to command them to go out. No, he's helping them to see his atoning work, his resurrection and commission within the Scriptures. He's equipping the disciples for the Great Commission. He's not giving them the command to go as we see in Matthew 28. And Jesus begins his instruction by telling the disciples that his death, his resurrection, are not an add-on to God's word. But they're the very fulfillment of all the scriptures. You can see that in verse 44. He mentions the three sections of the Old Testament. He says, it's in the law of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. It's in the prophets. It's in the writings. He refers to the book of Psalms, which stands at the beginning of the writings. And what Jesus means by fulfillment is that the Old Testament's message is ultimately about Christ and his redemptive work for sinners. That's the one thing you should get when you read through the Bible. The gospel is not like one of those many instrument solos within a symphony, one of many messages within Scripture. No, it's the melody heard softly all throughout the symphony, and everything crescendos and culminates with Christ. The gospel is what the whole symphony of Scripture is about. And he wants his disciples to be clear on that. So starting in verse 45, we are taught, that he opens their minds by explaining the Scriptures, just as he did on the road to Emmaus, as you can see in verse 32. And the things that he instructs them from the three sections of the Old Testament are the three major topics of the Gospel. In verses 46 and 47, we see that he taught them that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer that on the third day he should rise from the dead, and number three, that the scriptures teach that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now you'll notice that Jesus tells us of the three components of the gospel within the three sections of the Old Testament, but he doesn't give us any specific references. He doesn't give us chapter and verse So I think it might be helpful for us to put a quarter in the meter and park for a moment and just look at some of the places Jesus might have taken the disciples. Now, I know you guys are familiar with this, but we know that repetition is the best pedagogy. So what I'd like to do is give one example within the law, the prophets, and the psalms for each of these gospel components When it comes to foretelling of Christ's suffering, we learn from the law that God is a holy God who will by no means clear the guilty. So within the nation of Israel, God institutes the sacrificial system whereby the blood of innocent spotless lambs was shed as a picture of atonement for sin. The innocent suffering and dying in the place of the guilty. That's what we learn in the law. Within the sacrificial system, we have a picture of Christ. Do you remember what John the Baptist shouted out when Jesus came up to him as he was baptizing? What did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist knew that he was the sacrificial Lamb who was to come. How about within the prophets? The prophet Isaiah teaches us of the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, who will save God's people when we read in Isaiah 53 that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah prophesied that the Christ must suffer. This teaching is within the Psalms as well. Our Old Testament scripture reading today was from Psalm 22. Jesus quoted that on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Showing us that this psalm was about him. We learn of that crucifixion in the verses that were read, 14 through 16. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. They have pierced my hands and feet. All of these Old Testament teachings and prophecies find their fulfillment In the innocent Christ who suffered and died in the place of guilty sinners. Now, how about Christ rising from the dead? Specifically on the third day. Where do we see that in scripture? In the law, we see pictures of Christ's third day resurrection. When we read in Genesis 22 of the sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham. Do you guys remember that story? God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, as the text reads. It tells us that on, specifically on the third day, they go up the mountain, right as Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac. God provides a lamb instead, and Abraham receives his son back on the third day. Now the book of Hebrews helps us to see that I'm not being piggly wiggly with the scriptures. We know from Hebrews 11 that by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, it says in verse 17, his only son. Verse 19, it says, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he did raise him. He did receive him back. Abraham had resurrection on his mind. The author of Hebrews helps us to see that that three-day resurrection pointed to Christ. You guys know the story of Jonah really well, I'm sure. Jonah is told by God to go and warn the Gentile Ninevites about his coming judgment upon them. Jonah runs from God, boards a boat, and then God brings that mighty tempest on the sea. Jonah and the Gentile sailors are about to die in the storm, but then Jonah is thrown overboard to his death, to save the sailors. And as you know, Jonah being over, being thrown overboard to die at sea, he was picked back up by a fish, buried in its belly for three days, and then given his life back so that he could go to the nation of the Ninevites who had the opportunity to repent for the forgiveness of their sins. Death, burial, resurrection and the salvation of Gentiles. It's all there. And again, even Jesus certifies that pointer for us. Because in Matthew 12, there the Pharisees ask him for a sign that he is the Messiah. And do you remember what Jesus says to the Pharisees? No sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. Jonah pointed to, pictured Christ for us. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us see all the prophecies and pictures of our Lord in the scripture. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. We see the resurrection in the law, we see it in the prophets, and we see it in Psalm 22 again. Do you remember when we were reading verse 21? It says there, you, God, rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. After being laid in the dust of death, he's been rescued. That's resurrection rescue from death. All throughout scripture, we read of the gospel in prophecies and pictures. Jesus of Nazareth is the very Christ we had been looking for. He's the coming anointed one who knew no sin, who was the spotless lamb of God. He was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And three days later, he raised from the dead for our justification. Brothers and sisters... That's Scripture's message. It's right there for us. It tells us the old, old story of Jesus and his glory. How about this salvation being proclaimed to all nations? When it comes to finding this gospel component within the law, I hope the blessing of Abraham just comes right to your mind. The blessing of Abraham, that he would make them and make him into a father of a great nation. Genesis chapter 12. And then through this nation, he was going to bless all the families of the earth. From the very beginning, the blessing of salvation is going to go to the ends of the earth. Now we know that salvation begins with Abraham's family, Israel. It goes through them. It must be through Jerusalem because salvation is of the Jews. John chapter 4. And then it goes to the ends of the earth. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 49, verse 6 says, I will make the Messiah a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It's all there. And then it's all over Psalm 22 as well. We read in verse 27, All The ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you, O God. It's there. One message from Scripture. It's all about Jesus. My prayer for us is that we would never hear the words of Jesus. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Rather, I want our hearts to burn within us like the first disciples upon seeing our Savior in all of Scripture and to become convinced that Christ's work of salvation is the message of Scripture. That's what Christ was after with His disciples and He's after that with us. A sure faith based on eyewitness evidence and a conviction that the gospel message is Scripture's message. And that's all crucial because of verse 48. Because Christ's disciples are His witnesses to the world. They've got to be clear on what they're going to say, and they've got to be clear that it is true. If they're going to give their lives for the gospel mission, they have to be convinced that Christ's resurrection is real, And that the gospel message isn't some man-made message, but what God has been saying this whole time. Now in our last verse, we learn of the Spirit's empowerment for the mission. Jesus tells them in verse 49, And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Just think about how comforting these words would have been to the disciples. They had just scattered and fled on the night of his betrayal. And now they're getting entrusted with the gospel as he ascends to the Father. They're not going to be left alone. Because of the Spirit's empowerment, they'll turn from the scaredy cats to the ones who were bold unto death. That's what the Spirit does in this bumbling band of disciples. God's own Spirit is going to empower the disciples for God's mission. It's empowerment that the Spirit does. We learn that in Ezekiel 36, among other places, that it's God's Spirit who works in us and empowers us to live out His commands. The Lord declared in chapter 36, verse 26, And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Why? To cause you to walk in my statutes and to be, be careful to obey my rules. That's empowerment language. The spirit is going to empower the disciples. We know that promise was fulfilled at Pentecost when the Spirit empowered those early disciples to obey the command, to witness to Jesus, to make disciples of other nations beginning in Jerusalem. So that's the teaching of Luke 24, 36-49. I I started off by asking, what's it going to take for us to carry out Christ's mission? This passage teaches us that it's going to take a sure faith proclaiming Scripture's message by the Spirit's empowerment. Sure faith, Scripture's message by the Spirit's empowerment. Now, as we seek to apply this passage, passage's teaching, I want to drill down deeper on those three things. When it comes to having a sure faith, I don't want to assume that everyone here is walking in faith. You could be here at the instigation of family. You're here because someone made you come. Or maybe you're just here because you're checking out Christianity for the first time. I want you to know that the command for you to repent for the forgiveness of your sins and to put your faith in Christ's work for sinners on the cross is not a command to blind faith. It's not a command to blind faith. It's not a command to suppress knowledge and blindly believe. No. In putting your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you can have certainty concerning the things you've been taught this morning. Just as Jesus was crucified publicly, he rose from the dead publicly. The four Gospels share of multiple occasions on which Jesus showed himself alive again. Acts chapter 1 teaches us that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs for 40 days. 40 days of eating and chewing and people watching him swallow and touching his side and his hand. 40 days. Days of people seeing him. This isn't just some speculative resurrection. He rose from the dead and he showed himself to many people by many proofs. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians fifteen six that more than 500 people saw him on one occasion. That's more than we have here this morning. All of them seeing him, touching him if they want to. They got to see him back from Dad, dear unbelieving friend, this isn't a blind faith that you're being called to. There is physical eyewitness evidence of the resurrection. Not only that, there's scriptural evidence. This, this teaching isn't man-made. Jesus took the disciples through the, through the scriptures that were written a thousand years before he was ever born to show this was all about me. You can't manufacture that. You can't make that up. He proved from Scripture that He was to come to die and to be raised for sinners. Dear unbelieving friend, you've got eyewitness evidence. You have scriptural evidence. This faith is real. Please, I call you this morning to repent of your sin, to believe in the One who died for sinners, that you might have life eternal. But the call to believe And have a sure faith isn't just for the unbeliever. It's for us as well. We can have times where we struggle with our faith. Genuine believers can struggle with doubt and go through seasons characterized by weak faith. So maybe that's you this morning. You need to hear the call of Scripture to have a sure faith that he died and that he rose, that he saved sinners of all stripes this morning. I want to ask you, is there anything going on in your heart and mind that would have Christ saying to you, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now, it might be helpful to step back and ask yourself, What might be causing those doubts? Oftentimes, we are, we are going through a season of weak, weakness in faith because we've let the present circumstances of life threaten our faith. We've let the cares of this world weigh down our hearts. Jesus teaches us of the seed that fell among the thorns. Do you remember that? It gets choked out. The faith, the gospel gets choked out of the person because of the cares of this world. Things like, what will we eat? What will we wear? I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. Luke 14 describes the cares of this world as those who are busy buying fields busy with their investments and assets, busy with marriage. Those are all good things, but they're also things that can be capable of choking out our faith in Christ. So I want to ask you, if the cares of this world have been threatening your faith this morning, if that's you, don't suppress it. Bring those doubts into the light. Bring them to God to remove those doubts and give you a sure faith. Remember how patient Jesus was on that first Easter Sunday, showing his disciples his hands and his feet. Jesus is merciful and gracious. You and I are called to a sure and unwavering faith in Christ as the people of God as the people of God who live according to the word of God, we need to be clear on scripture's message. I want to ask you, would you say that there is more than one main point to scripture's message? Is there more than one main point? I hope not. I hope you would say, no, it's about one thing. As we have seen in our passage today, the scriptures bear witness to Jesus. Jesus wants us to see it's all about him. The symphony of scripture is all pointing toward him. But acknowledging that there's one main point, are you clear on what that message is? Would you say that the world is basically okay, but Jesus helps us in our weakness? I hope not. We are sinners through and through, who need to repent for the forgiveness of sins. Is our message that through our obedience, God, obedience to God's law, we are saved? No, because then Christ would have died for no purpose. Perhaps more current is Scripture's message about racial reconciliation or providing for those in poverty. Those are good things, but no. The scripture's message is that the reconciliation you and I need most is to the God we've committed injustices toward. The scripture's message is that we are depraved and bankrupt in spirit and that what you and I need most is the riches of salvation. Paul put it this way, Though Christ Jesus was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Are you clear this morning on what we are to say to this lost and dying world? We've got to be clear because we live in a world that is constantly assaulting our message. It's subverting our message through half-truths, which you know are whole lies. Jesus made sure the apostles were clear, and he wants no less for you and I this morning. And lastly, the Spirit's empowerment. There is so much that could be said about the Spirit's empowerment, but there's two things I want to tell you this morning that I think are helpful concerning him. First, the empowerment of the Spirit isn't something subsequent to becoming a believer. It happens when you become a child of God. It's the very Spirit that works salvation in you, so he's with you, he's equipping you from day one. I wouldn't recommend it, but you can start a Bible study right after you become a believer because he empowers you to do God's will. And secondly, the, Spirit empowerment, the Spirit's empowerment reveals itself in missional living. It's not the only thing the Spirit works in us, but Jesus does make that connection for us in verse 49. The Spirit is working missional living within us So are you living out what he's working in you? I think from scripture we can see that the missional fruit of the spirit is praying, sending, and going. The spirit empowers us and leads us to pray for more gospel laborers. Why? Because we know that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. We'll be praying according to verses like 2 Thessalonians 3.1 that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored in places that are unreached and irreligious. We will be looking to send others locally, regionally, and globally so that the lost may hear, believe, and be saved. And we will be going. Going and sharing when the Lord gives us an opportunity and a conversation to bring up Christ. We will be going and teaming up with others to evangelize, whether that's cold evangelism on the streets or evangelism in the, in the context of evangelistic Bible studies where you invite coworkers and friends, perhaps family. We will be going. All of us within our giftings have been empowered to pray, send, and go because he's empowering us for that great commission. So where are you this morning? Please know I'm not trying to browbeat anyone. This is convictional to myself. To be bold, to pray fervently, to be sending, to be going myself. This isn't easy. None of the fruits of the Spirit are easy. But He's working in us to produce these things for His glory. I want you guys to see this as an opportunity to recognize what God might be calling you to do. We all have a place on the gospel net to throw together, to pray together, to do it all together and let God get the glory as he brings in the catch that he has for his glory. Would you pray with me? Father, what a privilege it has been to have your word preached this morning. I pray that you would enable us by your spirit to live out your word. I pray, Father, that you would enable us by your spirit, if we are doubting and struggling with disbelief, that we would behold a merciful and gracious Savior. Father, if we are prone to lose sight of the message of Scripture, would you grab a hold of us and redirect us, make us clear about whom we proclaim? And Father, help all of us to live out what your Spirit is working in us by praying, sending, and going, so that Christ might be made known all throughout the world. We pray, Lord, that your glory would cover this earth as the waters cover the sea. We ask these things this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.